Since the murder of George Floyd, cities and towns everywhere have proposed reforms that they hope can transform their police departments. Proposals range from more body cameras to eliminating police departments entirely. But what really works? Which of these will improve public safety for everyone? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your all-purpose justice nerd and your personal guide to all of the criminal justice legal space. And still, yes, still managing to hang on to that excellent day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Turn back the clock to June of 2020. It had been just days since the death of George Floyd under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer, and there had been demonstrations and outpourings of anger at police not seen since the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Cities and police departments around the country began to respond as fast as they could to attempt to come up with answers to the question of how policing would change. There were commissions and task forces created, legislative hearings, and thousands of community meetings. I was part of this here in Pittsburgh. I'm sure others listening were part of it too. The idea was to answer a central question. Clearly, things had to change. Policing simply could not continue as it was. The ideas and proposals began with the ways police officers used force, especially deadly force, but they did not end there. There was discussion of the full scale of how policing works and for whom it works and for whom It does not. And the ideas offered covered the spectrum of small-scale changes to out-and-out abolition of the police. So, with such a broad spectrum of ideas, how does a city or town or community decide what's important enough and promising enough to pursue? What does a community want and does it help to know what actually works and what produces different results than what they get now. Now, here's one interesting answer I want you to hear. This is Tracy Cassie. She's a 25-year veteran of the Denver Police Department, where she rose to the rank of assistant chief. She's former deputy commissioner of training for the NYPD, and she's also co-founder of the Center for Policing Equity. As if that weren't all enough, she is also a former guest here on Criminal Injustice. Go all the way back to episode 15. She talks here about what reform will look like, where we should look for it, and how we should evaluate attempts at change. The audio is from the PBS NewsHour in an interview that followed the guilty verdict against former police officer Derek Chauvin. She's responding to a question here about what exactly needs to happen. What issues are important? Take a listen. Where community is absolutely demanding, for example, that that money be moved and made more efficient about the services they really need on the ground, we see this with mental health. 
Um, so you're going to see a lot more of this. We also see when it comes to how do you hold police officers accountable? Community has often voiced frustration that that does not happen, not just on a consistent basis, but persistently. And so you are going to have conversations and laws passed on the ground that have to do with collective bargaining and what types of protections do officers get even in that particular vehicle. So there's a lot of things already happening on the ground, and there's a lot of things we have to pay attention to. But I think what's going to be important through all of this and however this ends is that we've got to make sure that we collect the information, the data, so what we know works, we can share and replicate where appropriate. And we also have to pay attention to what's already been done on the ground historically by communities. We often overlook the fact that a lot of communities of color, black and brown communities, have been doing intervention work, have been doing focused deterrent work, have been doing it without getting the funds they need to do this. So a lot of this work is already happening. It's going to be a lot of, t a lot of us making sure we pay attention and that we lift up those things and those people who are doing the work. Did you hear that? It's a whole gamut how we respond to mental health issues, to accountability for police misconduct, what we should do about collective bargaining protections for police officers, all the way to and including funding for communities for work on public safety that those communities are already doing. And then, right at the end, notice what former Chief Cassie says. We've got to collect the data and the information about what happens and how well it all works so that we know what to do going forward. So we know what works and can replicate it elsewhere. In other words, it's great to have ideas and push forward and try something, anything, to fix these terrible problems. But one of the most important things that should guide us going forward is the question of what works? What makes a real difference in people's lives on the ground? Today, we're going to speak to two members of an organization attempting to answer that very question for these discussions, to evaluate the various proposals out there so that a town or a city or a community that wants real change can know what's likely to succeed as those choices are made. That organization is called the Council on Criminal Justice. The CCJ, as we'll refer to it here, is a nonpartisan membership organization and think tank. Its self-description says that it was, quote, created to advance understanding of criminal justice policy challenges facing the country and to help build consensus for solutions based on facts, evidence, and fundamental principles of justice. Close quote. And as the sheer number of proposals for reforms and change in policing grew through June of 2020 and into 2021, the council created an independent task force on policing. Launched in November of 2020, the task force's mission is to identify the policies and practices most likely to reduce violent encounters between officers and the public and improve the fairness and effectiveness of American policing. It is doing this by evaluating more than two dozen proposed policing reforms, including those focused on preventing excessive use of force, reducing racial biases, and increasing accountability and improving the relationship between law enforcement agencies and the communities they serve. 
Our two guests are here today to talk about this effort, what the task force has found actually produces better results, and therefore, what types of reforms might be most promising going forward. Both of them have also been here before as guests on Criminal Injustice. Dr. Nancy Levine is a nationally recognized and widely published expert on criminal justice policy research. Her expertise covers policing reform, federal corrections reform, reentry from prison, and evidence-based criminal justice practices. Most recently, Dr. Levine served as vice president of justice policy at the Urban Institute. Prior to that, Dr. Levine worked at the National Institute of Justice and as special assistant to the U.S. Assistant Attorney General, and worked in justice-centered agencies and programs at the federal and state level. Dr. Levine is now executive director of CCJ's Task Force on Policing, and she was our guest on Episode 90, summing up the state of the research on surveillance cameras as crime interventions. Nancy Levine, welcome back. Thanks, David. It's great to be back. Walter Katz is Vice President of Criminal Justice at Arnold Ventures, a philanthropy dedicated to work on issues in criminal justice, education, health, and public finance. Mr. Katz talked with us in Episode 43 about civilian oversight of police. He has spent more than two decades in public service, beginning with a 17-year tenure as a public defender in Southern California. He then entered the arena of police accountability, becoming Deputy Inspector General for the County of Los Angeles, helping to oversee the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And then he became the Independent Police Auditor for the city of San Jose, California. He has also served as Jet 3 to one. He has also served as Deputy Chief of Staff for Public Safety to the Mayor of Chicago, overseeing one of the most complex police reform efforts in the United States. In that capacity, he served as co-negotiator of the consent decree that was enacted in Chicago in 2019, and he led the design and development of the city's new Office of Violence Prevention. Mr. Katz is a member of the CCJ Task Force on Policing. Walter Katz, welcome back to you as well. Uh, David, thanks so much for having me. Last time I saw you was right before I left for Chicago. That's right, it's good to see you again. Uh, so Nancy, let's start with you. Let's start with the task force itself. Explain why the CCJ formed the task force and just as importantly, uh, who are its members and, and what do they bring individually and as a group? Mm-hmm. Well, the task force on policing was developed on the heels of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and um, several others, far too many names to, to mention, sadly, um, with the recognition that states and localities across the country were looking for solutions to the problem and looking to make past measures or policies um, in response that would address the, the crisis of policing in America as we know it. And um, they just felt like a lot of these um, go-to measures were not necessarily informed by the evidence, uh, nor by professional expertise and lived experience. 
So the task force uh, was designed to review those most common measures and uh, the members themselves represent a wide array of experiences and perspectives. There's 11 members total, um, several um, who represent the law enforcement perspective, um, a chief, Chief R. Acevedo, who's now with Miami Police Department, um, Sheriff Rosie Rivera, with, who's with Salt Lake County, um, uh, both Salt Lake County Sheriff, as well as over the Unified Police District in Salt Lake County. And we've got a union representative. Um, we also have um, people who represent police oversight, like Walter, uh, my partner on the show, um, people who have um, uh, been civil rights attorneys around um, police misconduct and violence cases. And importantly, we've got um, uh, two members who represent community perspectives where they've actually lost loved ones to police shootings. We've got a well-known advocate, DeRay McKesson, and we've got a very uh, credible policing scholar, uh, Cynthia Lum. So it's a tremendous, I'm not mentioning all by name because it would take too long, but it's really uh, an amazing collection of people who have worked really hard together to come to consensus on some very challenging policies. Well, that's that is quite a spectrum of people and views. So I imagine uh, you get a lot of good input as you review the research on these various topics. And I bet one of the topics that came up first or certainly near the top of the list has got to be use of force. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me just ask uh, how the task force recommends that cities and departments address this problem. Uh, I'm looking, as I'm going to ask all of our readers to do, we'll put up links to the uh, various assessment reports from the task force on our website. Please look at it for yourselves. I noticed in the first batch of assessment reports uh, for evidence in this area that the task force focused on three key areas in use of force, neck restraints, uh, duty to intervene policies, and no-knock warrants. Why did you, did you start with these? Uh, what does the research say about them? What kind of recommendations did the task force make? Mm -hmm. Well, we started with those three because those were the three most common policy responses to the moment. Um, certainly looking at issues of chokehold and other forms of neck restraints directly relevant to the death of George Floyd. Um, the banning of no-knock warrants is directly relevant to the death of Breonna Taylor. And then of course, the fact that George Floyd died um, because of asphyxiation um, while officers looked on and did nothing made duty to intervene a particularly relevant policy to explore. Um, so there's, there's so much in the policy assessment briefs that I would invite your listeners to explore. Um, so I'm just going to hit on some of the highlights and then Walter, if I've missed any important points, please chime in. Um, but with the neck restraints, there's, there's two kinds primarily that um, are often uh, sanctioned and police are often trained on. And that is the chokehold, which cuts off the airwaves and um, a vascular hold or a carotid hold, which is meant to compress um, the, the main veins uh, along the neck, which doesn't choke you, but actually it makes you pass out briefly. Um, there's 
good literature to suggest that both of these neck restraints can be used safely and effectively. Um, so the task force, you know, really wrestled with this. You know, why would we suggest banning something that can be done safely? Um, they also looked at the data and learned that less than one percent of people who died where law enforcement officers were involved in any way, shape, or form were a result of asphyxiation. So they knew that recommending banning chokeholds was not going to lead to a big reduction in deaths. Um, they also recognized that um, officers are allowed and sanctioned to use deadly force when they um, feel that their lives are, risk, are at risk or the lives of um, people are at risk and they can use any measures they need to um, under those circumstances. So that creates a pretty complex picture. Um, but at the end of the day, they felt it was really important to um, recommend banning these kinds of neck restraints because they recognize that training is poor and there's no guarantee that training would be sufficient to ensure that they could be done in a way that's effective and humane. Um, when looking at the data, they did make note of the fact that banning these neck restraints wouldn't have an impact, but they also recognize that there's no data on the number of people who are injured and traumatized by neck restraints that are misapplied. And you know that's just a whole other issue. Um, and so they wanted to make a recommendation that would reduce the, the risk of that occurrence as well. Um, so I'm gonna pause there because these are um, three uh, meaty topics and just see if you have any questions or Walter, or if you have anything to add on the first topic. Yeah, Walter, would you like to weigh in about the neck restraint question? I think Nancy actually covered it pretty comprehensively and that nuance uh, which he highlighted that we don't really know of who is being physically harmed but not killed by neck restraints and those who are emotionally traumatized by it, we don't know. And you will see that that is, if you've read our briefings, you see that that is a, is a common theme that the data which is really necessary to understand the impacts of police practices is, is sporadic. It is not collective, uh, collected in a way which is consistent from one state or one jurisdiction to another. And if it is collected, it is not necessarily uh, made public so that advocates and researchers can understand police practices. Yeah, and that's a theme that kept recurring as I read through these papers, which was the, uh, the, the, the poor quality of data on so many police practices. I mean, I've sort of talked about this myself publicly many, many times about how the only data we really have on just one aspect of this, shootings that result in deaths, comes from media organizations, the Post and the Guardian, not from any governmental sources. Uh, and, and so this, this lack of good data seems to color everything. It's true, and I can tell you as a former practitioner, uh, when it was uh, the police auditor in San Jose, what we published, for example, in our annual report was use of force that led to a complaint. What we were not seeing, for example, was use of force that for whatever reason did not lead to a complaint. And one should not hastily assume, well, that means that the use of force was good. It doesn't. There are many reasons why people may not file a complaint. But that's just one jurisdiction out of 18,000 across the country. Yes. And we take into consideration that about half the police departments in the country are fewer than 10 officers. We just don't know how much is actually occurring uh, in terms of conduct 
and, and training, uh, which is causing harm to individuals. Yeah, uh, so important uh, to mention that uh, there's a lot of things that just aren't tracked and so many police departments are in that very small range. Nancy, before we leave the topic of use of force, uh, talk a little bit, if you could, about these duty to intervene policies. I think these are relatively new uh, and yet they are really catching on. Yeah, um, so there's wrongdoing and misconduct on the part of an individual officer. Sometimes other officers take part in that wrongdoing, um, but far too often officers stand by and do nothing. And um, we know that's because of a culture in policing, the blue code of silence, blue wall, people have different names for it. Yeah. Um, but there's a real sense that um, you, you don't wanna intervene. It could be the hierarch hierarchical nature kind of militaristic nature, if it's someone who's more senior or supervisor, there's a lot of factors that go into officers not stepping in. And um, unfortunately, even when policies are on the books for requiring officers to intervene, um, people still don't, as was the case with George Floyd. Um, there was a duty to intervene policy in place. Um, so we looked at the research and what does the research say about the value of duty to intervene policies in the context of policing and found nothing. Um, there, there's an innovative program out there that more agencies are beginning to adopt um, that was uh, started in the New Orleans Police Department because of the consent decree. But that hasn't been rigorously evaluated. So the task force and supporting researchers had to look at other research out there, including what's known from experimental studies of training people to intervene when they're witnessing uh, sexual assaults in campus settings, which finds that um, those programs can be very effective as well as looking all the way back to what's known about people intervening or not in cases such as the Holocaust um, and learning quite a bit about the factors that um, need to be addressed in order for officers to comply with duty to intervene policies. And these include supervisors modeling intervention behaviors, um, uh, recognizing and commending officers that do intervene um, and certainly holding officers accountable when they don't. Yeah, this is important. Um, the uh, the New Orleans program that you were referencing, the EPIC program, Ethical mm -hmm. Policing is Courageous, I think. Mm -hmm. um, um, and now uh, uh, a, a, a follow-on program mm -hmm. created by uh, Christy Lopez and colleagues <laughs> at Georgetown. Christy Lopez, a former guest here and also former attorney with the Department of Justice who helped to implement that New Orleans program. So I, I know we'll be seeing more of that. Uh, Walter, let's talk about accountability, police accountability. I know this is your world. You know it as, as well as anyone I know. Uh, accountability for individual misconduct, uh, accountability for departmental failures. Mm. Um, uh, and this can come, of course, through government oversight, through civilian oversight. Let's start by talking about uh, misconduct by individual officers and how best to handle that. What does the research tell us? And what does the task force recommend? Well, I think 
one thing that we did is that we separated out the conversation about government oversight and civilian oversight uh, or community oversight, understanding that those functions can look somewhat different. But as I mentioned, how data and spotty data is an undercurrent with so many of our issue areas, as well, you see a common theme with our reports that the research uh, or the evidence base is also thin. If you go all the way back to President Obama's task force in 21st century policing back in 2015, Mm -hmm. One of the things they pointed out is that there is not a great deal of research on civilian oversight. Uh, and that begins with a very fundamental question of what do we mean by civilian oversight? That's even the question you ask before you even then ask what is effective oversight? Right. And that has been a real challenge, right? If the standard for oversight is that police officers use less force, uh, what we then see is a lot of disappointment then when there is a high profile incident and folks ask, well, why is it that we still have these things occurring if we have civilian oversight? So we went through those very questions and we had really robust conversation to understand the issues and to think them through. So that's how we landed on first thinking about government oversight. What's the role of internal affairs? What is the role, for example, of uh, an inspector general or, or a police auditor, which are more of these structured processes which are within government itself? And then also when we think about government oversight, we also think about the role of criminal investigations by prosecutors, as well as oversight, for example, of litigation. Civilian oversight is that question of what are they? Civilian review boards or are they something different? And there the recurring theme was that lack of clarity of mission, lack of sufficient funding, and often the political pushback against those kind of structures yes. has made difficulty in them achieving the success uh, which they are capable of by being this extra set of eyes and ears on the conduct of a police department. That didn't exactly answer your question about individual officer versus versus the broader issues, but then at the individual officer level of who should investigate, how is an officer held accountable? Mm -hmm. If this if, if it is found that a policy violation occurred, who is then responsible for deciding the discipline, the chief or civilian oversight board? And then finally, if an officer is disciplined, the whole post-discipline appeals process is yet an extra layer of account of, of complexity. Yes. I mean, it's it really is much more complex, I think, than people generally understand. I, I find myself explaining to people many times the difference between accountability of an individual officer for breaking policy or a rule or even the law on the one hand in an individual incident and accountability on the broader level of what went wrong here systemically. And there's just my opinion, it seems like we've had a lot of focus on the individual officer and whether that person is to blame and not enough focus on the systemic problem, the organizational problem, the idea of the organization learning and becoming better. What's your take on that question? Uh, David, I think your insights are, are the right ones. And when we look at uh, an incident, like a fatal encounter, what happens with it once it once it occurs? 
Well, there is the investigation of whether or not the officer violated the law, the criminal investigation, which, for example, led to the charges against Officer Chauvin. Then there's the policy investigation of that the officer violated policy. Then there is the civil litigation of was there a violation of the individual's civil rights uh, when they're injured by the officer, right? And those are all asking questions about the individual officer. Being able to take that broader step back and say, what are the conditions that contributed to it, uh, to that fatal encounter are more challenging because one has to be able to take the individual incident and extrapolate it to a broader, to a broader question. Thus, you can have a police department, like let's say a Minneapolis police department, which on paper was doing all the right things with de-escalation training, et cetera, yet still had George Floyd being murdered. Yes. And holding departments accountable uh, is really important. I think what you touched on is key. Let's look at these incidents from a systemic level, understand what contributed to it, and then hold departments accountable to make those changes to policy, training, and practice, which are needed to drive those changes. Let's uh, hit one more question, I think, before we take a brief break here. Uh, and this is one uh, that, that is constantly, I think, on, on the public's mind these days. And this is the question of body cameras. Uh, you all remember, I'm sure as well as I do, that in the wake of uh, the terrible events in Ferguson back in 2014, um, there was a universal outcry for body cameras and then almost universal adoption in bigger departments anyway of this technology. A lot of times a rush to it without even a thorough vetting of what it was about. And there wasn't that much research then. Uh, what's the, the take of the task force on body cameras as a technology for accountability and other things? Nancy, let's just start with you on this. Sure. Um, as a researcher, it's really exciting to see a policy measure or response that has a robust body of research behind it. There's been more research on body cameras than, dare I say, any other policing topic, at least in the last couple of decades, and more, more rigorous research at that. So more experimental designs and more um, highly rigorous uh, systematic reviews that involve meta-analyses. Um, and despite it all, um, the jury's still out on the topic of whether body cameras reduce use of force. Some studies find um, that they do, and even some rather rigorous ones. Other very rigorous uh, studies find that they have no impact. Um, but what we do know from this body of evidence is that on balance, they do seem to reduce citizen complaints against the police. Um, now that opens up a, a whole lot of questions. Um, why are complaints uh, getting reduced, but use of force not? Um, and we really don't know um, the mechanisms behind that. Some people point to the fact that body cameras um, make some members of the public less inclined to register formal complaints against the police. You know, Maybe some share of those are, are frivolous, it could be that um, the cameras are changing officer behaviors and in ways that they're acting more respectfully, but when it comes to more volatile situations, the cameras don't uniformly change behaviors around use of force. We just don't know. But what we do know is that um, the policies surrounding body cameras, uh, their usage 
um, well, better than they used to be. Uh, you referenced earlier, David, how um, you know the technology raced well ahead of, of policy guidance. Yes. Um, still, the yeah, the policies are still a little uneven, and more importantly, the use of the cameras and particularly their activation. Because um, officers have the ability to activate cameras, turn them on, turn them off. Um, very few agencies are using the automated activation um, features that um, come with the more new, the newer versions of cameras. Um, and so they're not always capturing um, events of interest. How the, the cameras are, are used and the footage is used in a supervisory or coaching capacity, um, where I, I think there's just not enough um, examples of that taking place where it could be really instructive and help uh, officers gain a better awareness of how their behaviors um, could be improved in their interactions with members of the public. And um, finally, issues around transparency. Um, there's just a patchwork of um, policies, both state and local level around whether, when, and how fast footage gets released, which is one of the main reasons why body cameras were uh, adopted to begin with, which is to enhance transparency around high profile events like police shootings. Yes, and this has been a, you know, a source of frustration from for the public uh, when their departments invest and there, it is a big investment of public funds and resources in these uh, technologies. And then, you know, okay, let's see the footage. And uh, the answer as it was in North Carolina, just a few weeks uh, mm -hmm. uh, before we're speaking today is oh, we can't. Uh, the legislature passed a law that says only a judge can release it. We'd really like to do that, but we can't. And there's a great uh, sense of frustration and even betrayal sometimes. Uh, let's take a quick break here. Uh, we're uh, very lucky to have two returning guests Nancy Levine uh, and Walter Katz, both serving now, Nancy as the executive director, Walter as a member of the Council on Criminal Justice Task Force on Policing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. We're back. David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice. And our guests are Dr. Nancy Levine. Uh, she is executive director of the Task Force on Policing uh, of the Council on Criminal Justice. And Walter Katz, he is a member of the task force, and we're talking to them about the various issue briefs. The task force has been working hard these last few months, producing evidence-based evaluations of the dozens of police reform proposals that we find in the United States since the murder of George Floyd. Uh, Walter, let's uh, start with you, if I could. I'd really like to know your take, the task force take on qualified immunity. That's a the name of a legal doctrine that is about as into the weeds as you're going to get. So I'm, I'm setting you up for an impossible task here, but I, I'd like you to see if you could explain what this is and what the task force recommends, because lots of people just want this weed torn out by the roots. Yeah. Wow. Where to start? Uh, so qualified immunity uh, really is a doctrine that was uh, created by the Supreme Court in the 1960s. So as I mentioned, when someone is harmed by a, a government uh, actor, um, 
and they believe that their civil rights have been violated under the federal code, they have a right to bring a lawsuit in federal court to receive damages for that violation of civil rights. Right. Then the doctrine of qualified immunity was actually developed to, in essence, uh, provide a good faith defense for government actors. But that has evolved over time, that now the qualified immunity standard asks essentially two questions. Number one, is the behavior that the plaintiff is complaining about, is it unconstitutional? And number two, was it clearly established law? And that clearly established is really important because the court's view is, if it is not, then we can't really say that the officer, the police officer, was acting in deprivation of the civil rights of that individual. What that has done, though, is that the focus in qualified immunity litigation has focused on that clearly established question. And is it was it clearly established in that federal circuit where the lawsuit was brought? And now that, what sounds like rather technical, is. And the result is what we see are these rather uh, bizarre, even, if not even perverse outcomes, where, for example, a plaintiff was uh, injured at the end of a foot pursuit when he was bitten by a dog. This individual had initially run away and then surrendered, sat down on the ground, raised his hands up above his shoulders, and the dog was still released and injured, uh, injured the individual. The court said qualified immunity applies because the only close case that we could point to, the individual was laid down on the ground, not sitting down, and his arms were outstretched. That was not specific enough to put the officer on notice that that kind of conduct is unconstitutional. Right, and this I think this is what drives people crazy about this. You've got, just, just to repeat, the case was the guy surrenders. He sits down, he puts up his hands, and then the police release a canine on him. And that's not, a, that doesn't uh, uh, put liability on the police officer because it wasn't clearly established that that was wrong, that that was unconstitutional. Because in the last case, in the last case, the guy was laying down, not sitting down. That just seems to be like the law uh, uh, with its head up, it's behind, if you'll excuse the legal expression. Yeah, I, I, I recognize that technical term. Yes. And, and so when, when we looked at this question of qualified immunity, we, we went into some really deep discussions to understand its impact and to understand the impact of what would reforms look like, right? From one perspective is officers uh, should not feel that their whole financial livelihood is put at stake by having to make a split second decision that turns out to be the wrong decision. For example, I thought that the person was armed with a gun in, in, a, in a dark parking garage. Uh, I thought he was pointing it at me in a split second, I responded. It turned out that the, it was not a gun, it was something different. Uh, I'm not saying that that is justified or not justified, but that is the argument that law enforcement would put forward to say, there's a reason for qualified immunity. But I think in the task force thought, there's a different way to think about it. For example, one option is to restructure qualified immunity to allow its use only in cases uh, for which the officer can prove the alleged unlawful misconduct have been sanctioned or prescribed by federal or state statute or regulation or department policy, right? So rather than the current standard is, can you find a case in that circuit which will tell an officer this is unconstitutional conduct? 
instead would say, can the officer point to law or policy which sanctions the conduct that the officer engaged in? And if the officer cannot do that, or if the officer can do that, then qualified immunity would apply. Yeah, boy, I got to say, I want you in my class. You're the first person <laughs> I've heard explain that so clearly. Um, let me let me shift uh, a little bit here and ask, you know, one of the things that we hear in the debates about police reform is uh, a, a kind of spectrum of ideas that would tell you at one end of the spectrum, abolish police you know, sometimes defund police. Uh, sometimes it comes in a slightly different form, which is reimagine what police do, what services should be provided by others who are more suitable. Uh, did the, has the task force taken on this question of either abolishing policing entirely or shifting of duties and resources into other actors? Yes, they have. Um, they they didn't take on the task of reimagining policing uh, soup to nuts, um, but they certainly uh, were aware of the pressures to look at what functions could be offloaded from police to other actors and entities, and um, as well as what uh, functions could be supplemented or complemented by other actors. Um, so they explored a lot of different subtopics related to this, looking at co-responder models where um, you know, trained mental health clinicians accompany officers on mental health calls, um, looking at mobile crisis units where instead of police response, um, non-police uh, trained clinicians respond in, in, in lieu of them, um, as well as looking at um, issues around traffic enforcement um, and um, and some uh, delving into community-led alternatives, um, of which there are several, uh, none of which have been rigorously evaluated. When looking at the literature, there's a wealth of literature on co-responder models, um, a fair amount of literature on training police so that they can better understand people experiencing mental health crises, um, as well as mobile crisis units. And um, most of those models um, have not been evaluated in a way that's rigorous enough or have not found that they yielded their intended impacts. Um, they looked at, at the LEAD, the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion um, model, which has um, been fairly rigorously evaluated and has shown um, reductions in arrests uh, that diverts people who um, largely uh, would have been arrested for substance use um, and prostitution and related low-level offenses, diverts them from prosecution. Um, but that's kind of less of a policing uh, response, right? Um, and they dug into the data, and this is, I think, the most interesting thing they learned. They looked at the data on how police are spending their time. Uh, this, is with, a, this is an important question. How are they actually spending their time? Go ahead. Right. I'm sorry. So if you think about you think about a funnel, the, the first thing you have is a call for service. A call comes into the CAD system and the call taker screens it. They do triage. And what we found is um, in looking at the research, about half of those calls are handled by the call takers. They never even go to dispatch. They're often inquiries or concerns. Um, requests for information, 
request for non-law enforcement assistance, but everyone calls 911 because that's what they're accustomed to doing. Even when 311 systems exist, people still use mm-hmm. 911 systems. Um, and then people who use 311 often call in emergencies there. So um, anyway, so if you think about a funnel, so like half of those calls get screened out by the call taker, then a share goes to dispatch. And of those, only about 4% are for someone who is in some kind of mental health crisis. But, and then more importantly, um, how do officers spend their time on those calls relative to others? And we find that when you look at officer time spent on mental health calls versus their time spent on other responses um, to dispatch, it's one to 2% of their time. So now bear in mind, one in four fatalities from police shootings are related to mental health issues in some way. So I'm not suggesting that these aren't important issues and that we shouldn't look at ways to offload or supplement the police response. Um, But it is important from uh, defund the police perspective to know that a very, very small share of time and thus resources are dedicated to these types of calls. Mm -hmm. And so it's a low uh, probability, high risk event when police are dispatched to these things. Uh, Let me ask both of you in our remaining minutes, uh, if you could pick one other thing that you think really stands out uh, in the task force's policy assessments uh, that we haven't talked about, what would that one thing be, Walter? Yeah, for me, it would be officer decertification. And I think it is uh, potentially uh, a reform which would have a significant impact on officer conduct. Now, let me first say, when we think about officer conduct, we think that the everyday police encounter um, goes well, uh, be it a a stop for a citation or uh, a, a call for a disturbance most go well. And one can also say that most police officers are doing their jobs correctly. But like in every workplace, uh, there are some folks who are police officers who shouldn't be police officers. Yes. And that is then recognized by that department. The officers engage in some conduct, uh, excessive force, uh, lying under oath, or something, so that the department decides to part ways with that officer. Now, in many states, losing that job will not necessarily then lead to the officer losing their policing license, which is really different from so many other professions. For example, in California, there are about 200 occupations which require some form of licensure by the state, including attorneys. And this is true in many states. But in many states, officers are not subject to having their uh, license or their certification evaluated if they lose their job at the department. Now, many states, uh, there are even some exceptions to this, many states do then lead to loss of certification for being convicted of a felony, but that's a really high that's bar. That's a high bar, yes. Right, but when we're talking about, for example, use of excessive force, lying on the witness stand, fabricating evidence, that type of conduct, or for example, uh, civil litigation that results in the finding of excessive force, state systems are incredibly weak in regulating those. 
so just a few days ago in Texas, uh, the former district attorney for Dallas, I believe it was, was disbarred because of hiding exculpatory evidence from a case where the defendants, two defendants, spent decades in prison. Uh-huh. Uh, police officers are not subject to those types of same rules generally. So I think our work in decertification, where we lay out some recommendations for how states can think about it, who has uh, jurisdiction to investigate potential decertification, and what should the standards be for an officer losing their license if they engage in serious misconduct, is really important. And it's important because it creates a new set of incentives for an officer. If an officer thinks he works at the department, where, you know, I'll probably be okay. You know, even if I lose my job here, I'll go to a different department elsewhere. Mm -hmm. What the research shows is that those officers may then end up at a smaller department with less oversight and, most importantly, are more likely to engage in serious misconduct again in the future. Nancy, what would be your pick for one issue we haven't really talked about? Uh, it's hard to pick just one, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on two, um, one very briefly, which is that um, the task force felt that national training standards should be a priority. And maybe if we had that and uh, more uniform and, and better training, we'd have less need for decertification. Um, but the, the other recommendation I'd like to lift up is around this notion of trauma-informed policing. Um, the the concept of trauma, it was a thread that ran throughout task force discussions. Uh, community trauma from the long history that police have played in uh, enforcing slavery and Jim Crow um, right up to the present day, particularly in communities of color that are heavily policed. Um, the type of trauma that's uh, associated with those communities because they've been uh, under-resourced um, and disenfranchised um, for decades upon decades, um, but also the trauma that police officers experience, which is, is really relevant. I mean, there's uh, been studies that find that um, a large share of officers have experienced some type of traumatic event, even in the most recent six months. Um, it's mostly vicarious trauma, but sometimes it's it's direct trauma. And if you don't address both types of trauma, you're not going to transform policing, right? Police won't know how to recognize trauma and mental health crises in their encounters with members of the public. And they also won't recognize their own trauma because there's stigma and help seeking in the traditional police culture, which really underscores the importance of officer wellness programs. So the task force felt very strongly that both sides of that trauma coin need to be recognized and addressed. And just to underscore both points, uh, the, the points that both of you made, I know that between uh, the day we're recording this and the day it will post to our listeners, uh, the task force is gonna be releasing a summary document of five key priorities uh, those will be national training standards, federal decertification database construction, the duty to intervene policies, trauma-informed policing, and increasing data availability and transparency. And for our listeners, we'll put a link to that report up on our website as well when it comes out. Uh, Walter Katz, he's a member, and Nancy Levine, she is the executive director 
of the Council on Criminal Justice Task Force on Policing, an effort to evaluate the dozens of reform proposals discussed and enacted across the country in the years since the murder of George Floyd. We have a link to the task force reports up on our website. I want to thank you both very much for being my guest a second time, both of you, on Criminal Injustice. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. And now let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And the story of this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly, which comes from PenLive.com, The Associated Press, Law360, and the ABA Journal News Online, it's about former District Attorney Chad Salzman of Bradford County, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. When a public official faces accusations of serious misconduct, the first thing we often hear from that official is, this is a smear, a vicious lie from my political enemies to hurt or destroy me and to keep me from my important work, serving the people. Sometimes this is true. Sadly, having grown up in the great state of Illinois, your host would have to say, be skeptical, because usually these statements are not true. Guess which one we have here in the case of lawyer behaving badly, Salzman. Allegations surfaced about attorney Salzman from before he was the district attorney, that is, from when he was a defense attorney, representing, among others, women who were criminal defendants who were facing battles for custody of their children, and who had other problems such as drug addictions, all of which made them extremely vulnerable. What lawyer Salzman owed these female clients, of course, were his strongest and best efforts to prevail in their cases. But what at least five of them got instead were efforts to pressure them into sexual activities with him in his office, with his office staff instructed to turn on loud music or air conditioning or other noisy appliances to cover up the uh, audio tracks of these horrors. Salzman not only pressured the women for sex, he urged them into prostitution to pay for his legal services. Let's just say it. What a piece of garbage he is. Well, reports of this conduct made their way to the office of Pennsylvania's Attorney General, who conducted a grand jury investigation. The allegations held up, and so the Attorney General's office announced in February of 2020, just a short time after lawyer Salzman took office as the elected district attorney of Bradford County, that the grand jury had indicted him on multiple counts for these horrific abuses of power. What was District Attorney Salzman's reaction? He denounced the charges as, quote, vicious lies that were politically motivated. Nothing, he said, would force him to resign the office with which he'd been entrusted by the voters. And nothing would keep him from the duty of upholding the law for the good people of Bradford County. Yeah... Fast forward to May of 
2021, and what's happening with those vicious lies? Well, Lawyer Salzman has entered a guilty plea to the charges that he called vicious lies. Yep, he's admitting to it. And he's resigned from his office, a condition of the plea bargain. And he'll also be surrendering his law license. Yeah, no sense in trying to keep that when the whole shebang is burning to the ground around you. He'd be disbarred in a heartbeat anyway. Sentencing is scheduled for July 9th of 2021. Let's hope that the judge sees this case for what it is. It is sexual misconduct in which women were pressured into sex and prostitution, which would deserve a hefty sentence all by itself. But it's more than that. It's a powerful person, in this case a lawyer, using that power to harm vulnerable people who can't resist. Lawyer Salzman is no better than a priest who abuses an altar boy, or a prison guard who coerces an incarcerated person or an arrestee into sex. I hope you rot in there, counselor. I mean former counselor and former district attorney. You're not just a lawyer behaving badly. You are a horrible human being. And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and with it, we wrap up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's www.criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to the Ask Dave tab on our website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the program. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. That number is 412-407-3389. Again, that's 412-407-3389. Remember, we are a listener-supported program. If you like what you hear and want to help, do that at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time.